This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. If you are an accounting, finance, data analysis, economics, numbers type of person, tech savvy, but not really salesy type person, you probably thought all of the career opportunities for you were sitting in cubicle farms at giant accounting firms or in the finance department at some bank or something. Not so. You can work in an amazing, fast-growing startup and do work that directly helps other entrepreneurs. You can work at Ceteris. You can be on the cutting edge of technology and automation within accounting. You can join a team of professional accountants who embrace automation, who use their skills to provide affordable and useful solutions to small businesses and entrepreneurs. It's located in Charleston, South Carolina, which if I do say so myself, is a wonderful place to live. And this is a really amazing opportunity. You don't have to be an accountant necessarily, but if you're kind of a finance numbers type of person, check out isaac.ceteris.com to get more information. isaac.ceteris.com. All right. Today, TK and I are joined by a guest. We have Abby Lovett with us for the first half of the show. We're going to kind of do this in two halves. And what we want to talk about, we talk a lot about Praxis, obviously, because it's, it's what TK and I both do and it's, we're passionate about it. It's the, the, the incorporated version of our kind of life philosophies. But we wanted to um, have somebody who's in Praxis right now, just kind of talk a little bit about the experience uh, what it's like to be a Praxis participant, some of the things that she has gone through. So uh, Abby actually came to us and said, hey, I want to come on and I want to talk about this. And uh, we said, okay. So Abby, love it. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I'm really excited about this. Uh, TK, I want to make sure that people hear your voice uh, with, now that we're starting. Do you have anything you'd like to say at this moment? <laughs> yeah, we, we don't want any emails from your mom talking about how mean you were this week. So thanks for the opportunity to speak. Abby, when Isaac mentioned you reaching out to him and he says, Abby, love it on the podcast. I said, dude, I love it. Oh, oh it's, it's, wow. I, I expected more from you, TK. Wow. <laughs> wow. Abby, I got to say, uh, that was actually the, the best joke TK's ever told. So <laughs> there are people in our audience who appreciate the sense of humor. That's because he stole it from cool people that did it first. Yes. Sure. <laughs> All right. So, Evie, I want to jump right in. Um, tell me a little bit about, you are a couple months into the program, and before, and the way that it works in practice, once you're accepted uh, and confirm your acceptance, even if you're going to start six months later, you sort of um, join the Praxis community on Facebook and the emails and group discussions. So you're in the program, you're a couple months into the actual program, but you've been a part of the community for a little longer than that. What has it done for you or what, it, what has the experience been like for you and what made you want to talk about it? Yeah, so I've, I've been in the program or the community, I guess, since February, and it's been it's been like an incredible learning experience, obviously, because the, the community of Praxis is so vast, you know, there's so many different connections and opinions and ideas. And so even as a non-participant who is just part of the community, I learned a whole lot uh, and I got a lot of great ideas and direction for some of my projects. But I think 
just recently in the last few months of being an actual participant has been some of the largest growth in my entire life because I'm, I'm super involved. You know, I'm working on the same projects that other participants are working on. Um, I'm, I'm along with the curriculum and so I'm learning new things and able to bounce those ideas off of people. I think that overall, it's much different than I expected it to be though, because you know, I, it was a, it was a really stressful thing to apply to Praxis in, in the first place because I wasn't sure if I was able to do this. You know, it's a, it's a pretty stressful thing to, to not go to college and then to kind of do something different. And so I was stressed about it, but then I got accepted back in February. So I had like six months to work myself up to the idea that this was what I was really doing. Um, but then I would say like the week before I, I started Praxis, I was absolutely terrified. And I wasn't very open about this with everyone else, but I had this constant feeling like I wanted to throw up um, for the entire first week, uh, like before Praxis started. And I was absolutely terrified. And um, then it started and it was still terrifying. You know, um, it's just a lot of new things, but like as soon as I started and as soon as I was open about my fear and of the unknown of, of what this Praxis program was going to be like, people just started pouring in their encouragement and their ideas and their support and things like that. And I automatically uh, changed my fear of the unknown into my excitement of reaching something else that might be scary because I knew that I had an entire community of people that were ready to come to my support and help me out. So. It was, it's been a roller coaster because every single month is different. So it brings different challenges. It brings brand new unknowns that are scarier than the previous ones. And so I, I would say that Praxis has been more difficult than I expected it to be, but in the best way possible. Uh, so yeah, in short, I, it's been incredible. <laughs> all, all I got from that was that you wanted to throw up and it made me, <laughs> it made me, I was thinking about I think all the best decisions in my life or the moments that resulted in the most growth were moments that I knew leading up to it, I want to say yes to this. I knew in my gut, this is what I need to do, you know, moving to a new city, taking a new job, whatever it might be, you know, proposing to my wife. And the minute I said it though, then I felt like I want to throw up or even like the first couple, <laughs> yeah. the first several times I did speaking gigs and someone asked me if I would come and, and lecture somewhere and I was like, this is exactly the type of thing that I've wanted. This is kind of like a dream or, or play music for the first time on a stage. So I, I know saying yes to this is right. But the minute I said yes, I was just like, <laughs> oh my God, yeah. what did I just do? Exactly. And, and I knew that meant that I was going to get something out of it. Yeah. And so I actually have this eight foot whiteboard in my, in my bedroom um, at my house in Baton Rouge. And I had the countdown on there for <laughs> until I started Praxis. And at day five, I stopped counting down. We should I was have like, sent oh, you like, you know, it's the final countdown. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. I, I feel like you would do it better than I would though. Like you definitely beat me there. Um, <laughs> uh, Abby, that sounds like how I felt when I turned 30. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you wanted to I'm just, throw up? Is that because of what you did at the celebration? Oh, <laughs> oh zing. zing. Hey, you, you know what, though? Uh, interesting little tie-in. This kind of reminds me of the, the common advice people give where they say, once you discover something you love, you'll never work another day in your life. And I like Isaac's take on this, and he wrote a blog post about it, and uh, maybe you can share it with the podcast. And that was, no, 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 no. 
once you discover something that you love, you're going to work harder than you've ever worked in your life because now the excuses are gone. Now you're accountable. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's interesting too because that was one of the biggest things that worried me about uh, the Praxis program is I knew in month two, I was going to have to start blogging every single day. And like, to be quite honest, I was really angry. <laughs> like, I was like, darn you, Isaac Morehouse. Like, ah, oh, I don't want to do this. <laughs> but, you know, I was like, oh, I'll just, I'll get through month two. And I'm sure the other eight months are going to be incredible. Abby, um, tell me why. Tell me why. Because I, I, I've heard a few people speak like this. What was it about this writing challenge? To tell the audience a little bit more about what it involved and what was it about it that made you so angry? Sure. So first of all, building habits is really difficult. So I think that the first thing that I was frustrated about is that I just knew it was going to be difficult. I knew that it was going to be really, really hard because I've tried to blog frequently, like just even once a week in the past, and I've never been able to get over the hurdle of the difference between motivation and habit. So when I don't have motivation to write, I just used to never write before. And so it would go three weeks to a month on my blog of absolutely no content because I just wasn't motivated. And so I had had that feeling before of, the, of knowing that I had no motivation and trying to write, but I knew how difficult that was to overcome it. In fact, I had never overcome it before. I had always let the lack of motivation get in the way of me writing a blog post. And so when Isaac told me that I was going to have to blog every single day for a month, I was like, oh gosh, no, um, I'm going to have to get over I'm not going to be motivated. Like I bet I'm not going to be motivated to write 20 out of those 30 days or maybe 25 out of those 30 days. And I have to figure out how to create like good work from a sense of habit and not from a sense of motivation. So first of all, I knew that was going to be difficult and I didn't know how to overcome it. And so I knew it was going to be a brand new challenge. Um, the second thing is that I'm sort of a perfectionist in the way that I release content. So whenever I would write before, it would be something that I would dedicate a week to. And I always thought that a blog post had to be several points, a lot of thought put into it. In fact, I wrote a blog post like halfway through three months ago that I still haven't finished because it's so long and I'm just adding thoughts to it and it's terrible. And that's how I used to blog all the time is I just would never produce anything because I wanted it to be perfect. Hmm. So the idea that I had to post something that I thought had to be perfect or valuable to everyone every single day was daunting to me. I, I thought there's, there's not enough valuable thoughts in my head to write something every single day. And so that was frustrating to me because I felt like at first that I was going to be forced to produce something that I wasn't proud of. And um, that mindset like totally messed me up. I was like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to produce something that I'm not proud of. But then, of course, every, all of that changed whenever I started blogging. And what I realized, and I've even gotten comments from people from a blog post that was just one paragraph long saying like, this is awesome. You know, that, that was actually really valuable. Or even people have gotten value out of my blog posts from, from just posts about me saying, I have nothing to talk about today. Like, I don't know what to say. And so I just say like, hey, 
today is a difficult day. Today, I am not motivated. I have no inspiration. And here's how I'm going to try to fight past that. Here's how I'm going to try to prove it tomorrow. And then I end the blog post by saying, see you tomorrow. Like tomorrow's going to be a better day. And I've had people comment on things like that by saying, hey, that was really inspirational that you were able to post something like that. So I feel like blogging every day made me realize that even in the midst of what I think is imperfect, someone else will always find some form of value from that. Even if they look at my writing and say, wow, that is crappy writing. I'm getting value from this by realizing I never want to write like that. You know, um, I'm always somehow providing value to someone, whether it's myself or another person. Uh, those thoughts and just creating a habit of getting my thoughts out um, is one of the most valuable things that I think I've ever done before. That that month too is my favorite month personally. I mean, not only because yeah. like I I sort of am, am the one who's like, okay, this is I'm the guide of this particular part of the curriculum and the videos and such, and I do that so that I can be bad cop and people can be mad at me. Yes, <laughs> well, so you, succeeded. But, you succeeded. You <laughs> succeeded. But it's both TK and I. Blog, day, blogging every single day, a challenge to do that and the commitment to follow through was completely life-changing for both of us. And he did it first for like two and a half years. But after the first year of it, he convinced me to do it and I did it. And after six months, it led directly to the creation of Praxis because I, I now knew how to create. I couldn't stop the ideas. Once I started blogging right. every day, it just changed the way I think and everything. And so for us, you know, this module, we've had people be like, but I'm not even interested in writing. I don't want to be a writer. Right. Not about writing. That's right. the secret. That's a, it's, it's a module about learning how to create, build structure, become a better version of yourself on command. How to actually, right. it's turning success into a discipline. If you can succeed at doing something as small as putting a couple words out and clicking publish every single day for 30 days, now you know how to be someone who succeeds and you can transfer that to so many things. And so we sort of smuggle it in as this is a writing module, but it's really not a writing module. Right. You go through and blog every day for 30 days. I have yet to find someone who successfully completed that challenge and came away saying, yeah, that really wasn't worth it. Never. Right. I mean, it's just a powerful right. exercise. Shout yeah, out to, uh, shout out to Philip Gross, who we saw all three of us were in Austin, Texas last weekend. And he came up to me and we talked a little bit and he mentioned how Isaac challenged him to do that 30 day challenge and it completely changed his life. And he can't imagine not writing. One thing I want to add to this is I also see this as a face the world challenge, you know, mm -hmm. ideas, your relationship to your creative ideas are very different when those ideas just hang out in your imagination as opposed to when you put them out there in whatever way you do. And writing is one of the most cost uh, efficient ways of taking creative ideas, putting them out there and taking a real risk of being ignored, being misunderstood, being criticized, being celebrated, being praised, having no one pay attention. All of those things are just so crucial for character development and make you a better builder in any arena of life. Right. I, I like what you said, uh, Isaac, about how, blogging for a while led to the start of Praxis because even, so I'm actually in month two of blogging every single day now. I'm continuing the challenge. I don't want to give it up. And I've convinced a couple of people who are not even in the Praxis program to do it as well because they've, they've seen the value in my life created mm. by it. Uh, but on top of that, so I, for graduation, I got a gift card to uh, Best Buy 
and I went and bought a podcasting mic, primarily because I was about to be on the Isaac Morehouse podcast for the first time, and I was fangirling and super excited, so I was like, I got to get a real mic for this, <laughs> um, <laughs> but also because I was inspired to start my own podcast, and this was back in May, and I never did it because I was like, as soon as I put that one that one episode out, I'm, I have some like obligation to keep doing it. And I didn't want to commit to that. But then, like you said, when I started blogging every single day, I realized that I can, if I want to do anything, create anything, I have the ability to do it now because I've created a form of habit and an ability to take a creative idea and make it happen on the spot. So now I'm three podcasts, four podcast episodes into my first podcast and I'm not planning on stopping. I've got guest lines up. I'm excited about it. And that would have never happened if I had never started blogging every single day for 30 days. Yeah, it, it is amazing what, what happens. And just, you know, you reverse your relationship with, with creativity and productivity. Instead of that kind of waiting for it to happen to you and then hoping that you have the time and ability to seize the moment of inspiration you just create a routine where you know, I mean, it got to the point with me with my blogging where like it took a long time to get to this point where I could sit down in front of a blank screen and I had no fear, even though I had nothing in my head that within five yeah. minutes I would have something that I was happy to publish. Um, exactly. Because I just knew I've done this before. I know I can make myself produce ideas and get them out. And that it's a kind of self-confidence that I think is really powerful. So um, what would you say what would you say made you go from wanting to throw up to totally feeling like, okay, now I'm in the groove. Now I'm glad I did this. I didn't regret it. I mean, cause it sounds like there was a long period where you were just really nervous and unsure. How did that transformation happen? The first taste of the idea that I could actually do it. So I felt like so your fear was more that you thought you might fail. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And, you know, the Praxis people are just an incredible group of people. And so I was afraid that, you know, I guess like the, and I've never been to school before, so I don't really know how to empathize with this, but the whole idea of going to a new school for the first time, you know, like you just don't know if you're going to be able to fit in or you're going to be able to compare to everyone else, or if you're even going to be able to survive yourself. And so um, my whole fear was that I was not on par with these people, but worse yet, it was, and what we've talked about several times in the practices group is the like imposter syndrome. I felt like for an entire year since the idea of praxis came on my, my table, um, that I had been telling people how like awesome it was that I was doing this and how I knew I could do it and how, um, like I was going to change the world one day. And then a week before Praxis started, I was about to have to prove that. And I was about to actually have to do everything that I said I was going to be doing for the past year. And it was terrifying. So I think that as soon as I got the first tiny sweet taste that, hey, <laughs> you actually can do this, um, I felt better. And, and I'm not going to lie. I went back to old messages from Cameron and my acceptance email from Praxis to remind me that I could do it. Um, 
like why I was accepted to the program in the first place. And I've known participants that have done that in the past as well. And even people who have dug for compliments before and just said, hey, I need to be reminded, why is it that I can do this? And so as soon as I was reminded of the fact that like, you're not an imposter, like you, this is new to you, so you feel like it, but hey, you can actually do this. Um, I was automatically put at ease and ready to tackle the next project. TK, I know you share this experience. It's, it's so funny for us because while all of the Praxis participants and alumni are truly amazing people, they're also just people. They're human. They're not like superhumans. This is not, we're not selecting people that, you know, only a dozen of them exist in the world. And, you know, if you're not one of them, you're just never going to cut it. We're taking people who are, honestly, they're just good, hardworking people with solid character and drive. And that's it. And, and they don't usually, even to their own parents, they don't appear to be anything exceptional most of the time. Most of them are like, yeah, you know, so-and-so is kind of interested in this and that and not really that interested in some of his classes. And I don't know. And when they get into the program and start to kind of unleash themselves, what the external world sees is, oh, Abby Lovett, she has a podcast, she's been blogging every day, she's had two blog posts that went viral, posted on third-party sites, she's, get, she's gotten interviewed on other people's podcasts, she's, you know, a debate champion, whatever. They see you and they're like, oh, that's somebody, I don't know if I can compete with a group of people like that. But, but you, from your own perspective, were thinking the same thing about everyone else. And, and the secret exactly. is, it's all just people we're all just people that it's a, it's not there's nothing super it's like unattainable about what it takes to succeed in life whether in practice or not it's only something as small as you start blogging every day for 30 days for example and then you learn that you can do it and and now all of a sudden you just start doing things and producing things and people see that and they have this idea that you are someone who's just sort of always been different. You've just always been the best of the best. And again, I think you are and you always have been talented, but it's this weird guy. TK, maybe you can help me elaborate what I'm trying to say here. I'm always surprised at how intimidated people who are applying to the program or thinking about it or incoming in the program, they're intimidated and they think they're not going to measure up. And I'm always looking at them and I'm like, are you kidding? You're amazing. You're going to be fine, you know? Absolutely. Well, you know, part of it just comes from the way in which success stories are marketed to people. We showcase the <laughs> yeah, success you, you part. You have a viral blog post called, I wanted to throw up for two weeks. <laughs> right. Yes. I right. should write that. <laughs> hey, that's how we do it, right? We don't advertise the process. Even in the movies, there's just sort of like a 30 second montage where you see the person, you know, working out, you know, hustling, ascending to greatness. And most of it's about, oh, this is all the glory of it. But People don't understand the process that everybody that's successful goes through a process. I was just interviewing the, uh, one of our Praxis alum, Mitchell Earl, and he was talking about this same thing. When Isaac challenged him to do the everyday writing challenge, he was nervous about it. He didn't think he could do it. He was afraid that he might run out of material. And after he did that 30-day challenge, he realized, oh my gosh, this totally changed my life. Then he went on to co-author a book with Isaac called Don't Do Stuff You Hate. He went on to record the audio book for another book that we co-wrote, which was uh, Why Haven't You Read This Book? And he's just been off and running since then, but he had to experience what it was like to actually create, not just be told what to create. And this is something that a lot of conventional schooling just doesn't give us the chance to do, the opportunity 
to see how powerful we are by giving us the freedom to just go express that power, even if that means you might fail. Yeah, and I think what's important is what makes it separate outside of school too is what helped me is just taking the first step out of normal. So that's like mm. the scariest thing ever is is to make the, the making the decision that you're going to step outside of normal is scary in and of itself, but taking the first step outside of normal is pretty terrifying. But then once you take that first step, the next step is easier and then the next step is easier and then pretty soon you're running and you're getting stuff done and you are liberated and you feel free and you feel encouraged and inspired, but you're going to feel like you absolutely want to throw up and pass out when your foot is in the air and you're about to take that first step out of what is normally accepted or what is normal to you. All right, Abby, I'm going to I'm going to seem like I'm going in the complete opposite direction because we talked about you having these negative feelings, overcoming them, figuring out how to get stuff done. But now I want to talk about something you and I've discussed before, which is this concept of not doing stuff you hate. I mentioned Mitchell Earl, who co-authored the book with Isaac. I shared it on Facebook today. Don't do stuff you hate. Tell me, how has that concept revolutionized your idea of work and changed your life? A lot. <laughs> um, so first of all, I think just the concept of saying no to things has revolutionized. So n not necessarily only pursuing things or not pursuing things that I hate, but the ability to say, no, I am not happy doing this and I'm going to change something. And I think that what that has done for me is not only given me the power to do the things that I really love, but has also challenged me to critically think about every situation that I'm in. So like, for example, if I'm running this podcast, I'm not just going to keep on doing my podcast because it's what I'm supposed to do. Now I'm, I'm thinking, am I still getting value from this? Is this something that I enjoy doing? Could I be doing something better? Um, is, is this providing value to me in any way? And so I'm able to think about the situations in my life and this time really think, is this something that I am enjoying? And if I'm not, I now have the courage to be able to step away from that. Whereas in the school, classic school system, you can't do that. You, I hated math in school, but there was no way that I could just not do math. I had to do math. I had to finish it and I had to get an A. Uh, well, my parents were great. I didn't have to get an A, but I wanted to um, because I was a perfectionist. Um, but, so I was never taught to, to, to think critically about whether what I was doing was really what I wanted to be doing because I thought it was just the next step on the road to getting to where I wanted to be, which in the end, it actually was not. You know, it's funny, uh, Abby, I've heard you mention before struggling with being a people pleaser. Um, and I, I similarly, I've kind of, I like to make people happy and persuade them. And that often bleeds over into being a people pleaser. Mm -hmm. And rather than throw out my natural tendency to want people to be happy and, and whatnot, I've tried to say, I want to be a people pleaser, but I just want to start with me as the person I want to please first and foremost, and not in a way that's like, I want to be a jerk and, you know, um, right. but just recognizing that. And so when someone, for example, you know, says, Hey, can you come and do this, uh, event or can you do a favor for me? Or, um, you know, would you want to help with this or whatever it might be? Learning when I see those things and I know that it would help this person and make them happy but I also know it would add a lot of stress to my life and make it harder for me to do the things that, I'm, that I consider of higher importance. 
when I think about, okay, if I want to be a people pleaser, which one's really going to please me? Which one do I feel the most at peace about? Which one do I feel the most excited about? Saying no and the freedom and frankly pleasure that comes from that being like, no, I'm sorry. I'm just not of it. And and people are never usually ticked off. They're just like, oh, no worries. I thought you might be busy, but I'd ask. And all of a sudden you feel this freedom. But when you get caught in this, like, I have to do everything, it can be really, really dangerous because you you're addicted to the fact that everyone says, oh, you're so great. You were so helpful. Thank you. But you're just pulled in every direction and you're just starting to like slowly unravel and you're not happy, you know? Right. And I think something else important to recognize is, you know, if you look at the way that Jesus lived his life too, he lived a life of self-sacrifice in order to bless other people. And some people look at that example of Jesus and they're like, well, I don't want that. I want to make sure that I'm happy. I want to make sure that what I'm doing is making me happy. But something that I realized is, is yes, there's a lot of cost benefit analysis that has to go into it. So I'm willing to sacrifice a little bit of my happiness if it means so much more to somebody else. And so I'm not the type of person that is going to just say, absolutely not. I would not be happy if I was doing that. And so I will not do it. I will put myself first. Um, But I am able to now weigh everything and say, hey, maybe in this situation, I would be far more unhappy than that person would be if I actually followed through or something like that. So, So what I've realized in the last few weeks about being a people pleaser is that I still, like you said, I should definitely still strive to please the people around me, but I should always um, make sure that it's not getting in the way of who I want to be. So like, I, I don't think that there's a line to be drawn. I think that you just have to weigh everything. And it's, it's, like a, it's like a question of maximum leverage or maximum sort of global impact over the course of your lifetime. Mm-hmm. If you say, you know, uh, like if I were to say, um, you know, at any given time, the thing that I'm doing I want that to be the most important thing I could be doing. And I want that to be the thing that I'm putting everything into. If I'm doing something while thinking I really should be doing something else, that's not a situation I want to be in. And if I were to say to myself, you know, uh, joining some nonprofit board or going to some uh, event that's not really related to what I'm mostly focusing on, if that makes it harder for me to help build praxis into what I want it to be, which one has a, a greater chance of impacting the world in a way that is meaningful to me or helping others? Like me being the fullest version of myself and putting my energies into the things with maximal long-term impact is going to do more to help others than me trying to meet the immediate short-term needs of every other person that comes along. You know, I mean, it's like a, a parent that is constantly trying to help people and volunteer at the soup kitchen because they can't say no. Meanwhile, they're kids are all, you know, like missing them and things are falling apart because they're run ragged. They're, you know, so just, it's kind of putting in perspective, like I can help people most when I'm focusing on the fewest number of things uh, outside of sort of the core of my mission, if you will. Exactly. You have to be willing to take a step back and look at the bigger picture and realize what is overall going to be the most benefit to myself and others around me. Abby, how can people get a hold of you, check out your stuff, and, uh, and what words would you have for young people listening who may be in your shoes? Sure. Uh, so first of all, you can visit my website, abbylovett.com, and there's a bunch of things and ways to get involved with me. I, I love 
to talk to young entrepreneurs. I love to discuss content on my blog. And so if you read a blog that strikes a chord with you or if you disagree with, send me a comment. I would love to hear it. I would love to discuss it with you. Also, I am big into speaking and communication and entrepreneurship. So I would love to discuss things like that with you as well. And then also I just launched a podcast, the Abby Lovett podcast. And uh, that is all about giving young entrepreneurs some insight into the unknown. That's a little oxymoron, but um, kind of giving them an idea into what Praxis is like, into what uh, being a young entrepreneur right out of high school is like so far I've interviewed only people that are practice participants and so it gives a, a really good insight into what the program is and hopefully giving you an idea of why you should be involved. Um, I would say that the piece of advice that I want to give to people is that to just swallow that feeling of feeling out like you're going to throw up. Swallow the um, vomit. Swallow the vomit <laughs> is my oh, advice man. to you, man. Um, yes. Uh, and just take the first step. If you, if you have to, you know, if you have to close your eyes while you're doing it, if you have to throw up while you're doing it, if you have to be terrified while you're doing it, just take the first step. And then that at least will give you an idea if it's something that's worth it. Because that first step gets you inside the door, gives you um, an idea of what it's like, and then you're going to be able to determine what's best for you. But you have to take the first step first. I love it. Abby, I love it. Abby, oh, I love wow. it. Yep. I, wow. it was, wow. Wow. Yep. Abby, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking with us today. Thanks for having me. All right. Cheers, Cheers, Abby. Bye. All right, TK. It's just you and me again, alone in a virtual room. Holy moment. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, one thing that Abby what we were talking about, I was trying to get at it in way too many words with way too little clarity, but the, the distance between good and great, when you look at great, it looks not like a difference in degree. It looks like a difference in kind from when you look at good, someone who's good at something or decent or average. And so it looks like once you've seen someone who already is great or something that's already great, this is a whole different level. It's a completely different plane. It's just inaccessible. But the reality is the distance between good and great is incredibly small. It's incredibly small. If you take someone who's good and if they can do a small number of, of things, just say, I am relentlessly going to commit to becoming better every day in some way, they will become great in such a short amount of time and they won't even think it was that big of a transformation. They won't be like, Oh, now I'm great. I used to be good. They'll kind of just feel like they're continuing to make progress. But from the outside, you know, someone who's good, let's say at writing or whatever, maybe you've seen a few emails they've written or they've shared a story with you or whatever. Oh, they're good at writing. Someone who's great is someone who's got like books published and people, you know, publishing their stuff on different various places or they're making money from their writing. The difference between those two is a very small distance. It's like just taking that good writer and saying, I'm going to write something every single day and I'm going to submit something every week and I'm going to put up an ebook and put it for sale. And I'm going to do that every six months until one works. And all of a sudden, you know, you've, you've crossed that chasm. So and that was kind of what I was trying to get at. Yeah. You know, one of my theories about creativity is that creativity is the, the word we use to describe processes that we're observing from the outside looking in, 
you all you always tell the story i stole it from you about barry sanders and how the commentator asked him after a game how he comes up with all of those really creative ways of dodging people and barry just said i just don't like to get hit right he wasn't <laughs> thinking how can i be creative he just had a, yeah he, he just had a goal something that he was trying to achieve and along the way of pursuing that goal he came across obstacles and he had to figure out a way to negotiate and navigate those obstacles so from the inside out it was just a matter of getting things done but from the outside looking in for people that weren't involved in the process for people that have a hard time imagining that result they say wow you're so creative but once you get inside the process and you jump in and you experiment and you give yourself a chance to try new things you realize that what you call creative is just a natural thing to do for human beings. And you really gain an appreciation for this when you study the lives of great creators. One of my favorite pieces of advice came from Philip Daniels. He said, over the course of your lifetime, read a thousand biographies because in doing so, you will build a vast vocabulary of overcoming incredible odds. One of those biographies, it was a gift from you and Heather to me. It was on Rod Serling. And his wife talked about how when Rod Serling passed away, he's the creator of the Twilight Zone, my favorite writer, he thought that he was just an average writer. Even though this guy went on to influence so many sci-fi writers, everybody who's writing in sci-fi TV today, you know, uh, from Lost and X-Files to Stranger Things have been influenced by this guy, but he kind of thought he was just average because that's kind of what the creative process is like from the inside out. It doesn't feel as glamorous as it looks. And once you realize that, it demystifies it and makes it something that you can be a part of. Yeah, it's funny, you know, I, I think when we were talking about people looking at praxis and feeling intimidated, I often talk to young people and I say, look, you don't have to be great and you don't even have to say, I want to be great. Because most people who become great don't start by saying, I want to become great, let's go do this. Because that feels, it feels arrogant or it feels like, well, I don't really have permission to even think of myself as capable of becoming great. What does greatness really mean? Well, who am I? That's the way most of us start. But I think if, if you start, all you need is to say, I want to be better. I am relentlessly committed to becoming better. I just want to become a better version of myself, better today than I was yesterday, better tomorrow than I'm today. And little by little, all of a sudden you'll realize, wait a minute, like, I'm kind of coming up on greatness. Greatness is within the realm of possibility for me. Maybe I do want to be great, but first you have to learn to even give yourself permission to want it. It feels gaudy. It feels, it feels just inappropriate to say, I want to be great. I want to be the greatest ex that's ever lived. That like people would be like, whoa, don't say that. No, everyone feels really comfortable. But if you just say, I want to be better, I want to be better at X than I am today. And you keep doing that pretty soon you'll realize that greatness is a possibility and you'll start to get comfortable with that as something that you're trying to achieve or you'll realize maybe or other people realize that you are great. Um, and I think that's usually how it works. Yeah, man, I think the pursuit of greatness is silly. Absolutely silly. It's as silly as the pursuit of being rich. I mean, what in the world does that even mean? I mean, I remember my first job after college was as a financial advisor with American Express. And one of the things we had to do was sit down with clients and help them specify what their goals were and think about it in just like real concrete terms. So people would come in and they would say things like, I want, I, you know, I, I want to be wealthy. I want to be rich. And, and for each person that meant something different. What does that mean? Like, let's not talk about being rich in the abstract. What do you want to do? And then people would say things like, um, I just want to enjoy what I do for a living, or I just want to make sure that my family's secure. And with some people after talking to, the, to them for a while, 
the same person that said they wanted to be rich, it turns out that their goals are achievable with a $60,000 a year income. Straight up, dude. And this was a person who said, I need to be rich. And they were being held back from achieving what they really wanted because of some nebulous abstract goal. I think the same is true of greatness. It's like being smart. Don't, nobody ever becomes smart by trying to be smart. Just chase after the ideas that interest you and you will become smart as a byproduct. I don't know. I think there's something different here. I think I disagree with you on this one. And in fact, one of the earliest episodes of the podcast, uh, my brother Levi came on and we talked about greatness, but I, I, I love the pursuit of greatness. And I think once you say, because there's something about the word and the, the, what the concept, once you say, I want to be great, I actually want greatness. That's a big, big step. I don't think anyone gets to where they're comfortable saying that until they've first just gone after improving themselves. Like I would say, I want it to be great. I want to achieve greatness. I think that's a lofty goal. I want to achieve a level where I would say like, you know, I have achieved greatness at what I'm doing, not just good, you know, something beyond that. And I'm, I'm totally in pursuit of that. And that pursuit of that word means something to me. And it's a big deal for me to be even comfortable enough to say that because it took me a long time to get to the point where I even thought about that or where I even thought it was possibility or where I didn't feel afraid of if I say that, then what happens? Everyone will, will be judging me and be like, oh, I thought he wanted to be great. Look at what he's, what, wow, what a failure, right? Because it, in my mind, it's a standard so high that you're never quite there. And saying it is like you're comfortable you don't care how people judge you going after it. You're comfortable saying, I, I want to be, there's something about it that is meaningful to me. I like that. I, I think it's somehow different than saying, I want to be wealthy. And you can tease out from that what exactly is meant by it. I think the fact that greatness is vague and nebulous means that it comes with a lot of fear to say it. And once you say it and openly say, I'm in the pursuit of greatness, it's like, just saying it alone it requires you to overcome some of that fear and, and keeping it nebulous requires you to sort of be comfortable no matter what people think. I, I don't know. Does that resonate with you at all? It, it kind of sort of, but I want to push back a little bit because I, I think there are some important distinctions here. So I, I think there's a difference between how you use a word or how you understand a word when you're experiencing it versus how you understand it and use it when you're on the outside looking in, trying to get there. So I'll use an analogy. Let's take the concept of happiness. I find that people who describe themselves as unhappy and who say they want to be happy have a totally different understanding of happiness than people who describe themselves as happy. So one, one funny story, my, my wife, um, one time she, she goes to work after having kind of a really challenging weekend, but you know, she gets through it. She goes to work and one of her coworkers says, how was your weekend? And my wife says, it was cool. And her coworker says, oh, wow, I'm glad you had a great weekend because you know, my car broke down and I got into a fight with my husband. And my wife was like, I didn't know this was a contest because I actually have 20 to 30 things like that. When I said my weekend was good, when I said it was cool, I didn't mean it was perfect without any challenges. I just meant I didn't die and I'm grateful for getting through everything. Now, when you look at the actual experience of these two people, the experiences were pretty similar, but the difference between happiness and unhappiness in this instance, it wasn't so much about the experience, it was about the way they were describing their experience, the way they were framing their experience. I often say that a lot of people who are unhappy 
they, they feel so jealous of people who are happy, they would be so disappointed if they could see how unglamorous the internal experience of happiness is. They would realize if they could jump in the bodies of these happy people, they would realize that it's quite disappointing and it's a lot similar to what they're already experiencing. And the difference is the frame. So I, I think in the same way, when, when we talk about greatness, Look at how many people have a hard time saying that and ask yourself why. Why do so many people have a hard time saying things like, I want to be great? Because most people see it in this mythological, highly mystified way, in this general, nebulous, vague way. I would say the reason you're comfortable saying that is because you have actually fleshed out, you have parceled out your understanding of what it means to be great. You don't want to be the next Michael Jordan. You don't want to be famous. You don't necessarily want to be rich. In fact, I know th th these things about you. I know that you don't want to be these things. When you say I want to be great, what that means is I want to be fully committed to going after what I want and I want to excel at that. And it's that level of specificity that distinguishes you from the people that can't say it. The people that can't say it are trapped in that ambiguity. I always need you to convince me why when I think we disagree, uh, we actually don't because it's usually always correct. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I, I, think, I think you're right. I mean, I guess my, I, I wish, I would love to see more people unabashedly saying, I want to be great or I want to be great at this particular thing or even I want to be rich. Like, I think some of those things that people actually do want, but are afraid to let themselves want, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. whether they're defined or not, but just the act of saying it openly begins the process of forcing you to define it. What do I really mean by that? Kind of giving yourself permission to go big, which ties into one of the two things that I wanted to, to chat with you about today. I had two, and I don't know if you had any, so maybe we can lay out our topics and then see if we have time for a couple of them. What do you think? Let's do it, man. All right. So I, the two things I wanted to, to talk about was uh, the most important relationship in your life, which is not with your spouse or your mother or brother or uncle or dad or friend or anything like that. It is with self one and self two, the relationship between those two selves within you. Um, and then the other thing I want to talk about was betting on yourself and how most people unwittingly are constantly placing massive bets on everything but themselves they're shorting mm. themselves and they're going long on basically anything that's not them and how i think that's the opposite of maybe the, the approach we should take what, what did you have that you wanted to go over so this is all based on a reaction to the conversation we had earlier with abby the first thing i want to talk about is saying no and why you're actually being mean to people when you refuse to say no in an effort to be nice and number two abby gave a shout out to jesus and she talked about Jesus sacrificing himself to be a blessing to others. And I actually want to talk about Jesus as an advocate of disunity and, um, and, and, and how that correlates to the philosophy of don't do stuff you hate. Ooh, do you think we have time to hit all four of these? You want to go a little long today? I think we can do it, man. All right, let's do it. What do you want to go on first? I think we should start with your first topic, man. So... I just uh, finished a little bit ago a book called The Inner Game of Tennis, which my good friend Ian gave me. Thank you, Ian. Um, he gave me his copy and it was like real dinged up and it had a sticker on it that said $1, uh, that, which is exactly the kind of thing I like because it makes me feel <laughs> pressure to like read it and pretend I liked it. Um, and it actually made me more likely to read it. So, uh, so anyway, the inner game of tennis, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a new book. Um, and I think there's like a whole bunch of inner game of, you know, everything. Once one of these books gets popular, they always, you know, whatever, translate it into every possible thing. The, the inner game of 
Monopoly, you know, just like the, uh, the prayer of Jabez for daughters, the prayer of Jabez for sons, the, <laughs> the purpose-driven car, whatever. So, <laughs> yes. But I don't know about any of the other stuff, but The Inner Game of Tennis, um, short little book, phenomenal book. I really loved it. And the core insight, and there's some specific stuff about tennis serves and things that I skipped over, but the core insight is that the real game being played, whether it's tennis or any high-level activity, is an inner game. And, you know, when you watch someone play tennis, it's incredibly common. And I, I mean, even when I play with my wife or play basketball, to see them saying like, oh, stupid, come on, you know, get your arm around or whatever, you know, come on, Isaac. They're, who are they talking to? They're talking to themselves. And the way that the author breaks it down, I really like this. He breaks down self one, which is your conscious, rational, thinking, planning, analytical self. And self two, which is kind of your like, animal nature, the beast within, the instinct-driven sort of, I don't know if I want to say spiritual, but the, the maybe subconscious, um, kind of just, a, the, I don't want to say automatic, but the, this inner self that's not analytical, rational, conscious, which is why when someone's playing any sport incredibly well, you'll say like, oh, she's playing out of her mind, or oh my gosh, he's unconscious, right? It's when you get in that zone where you're not thinking about it. If you've ever had this, I have this all the time. If I'm shooting free throws, I'll be like in the zone, I'll make like six in a row. And then all of a sudden I'll become aware that I made six in a row and I'll start thinking about what I've been doing right and how to replicate it on the seventh shot. And then inevitably you, you miss, right? And yep. so the idea is that self one is great at analyzing things and at coming up with goals and deciding specific, you know, techniques you want to work on with your shot or whatever else in sort of the observing phase, but self one is horrible when it comes to performance time. And what self one does is belittle self two and doesn't trust self two. And so self one will be like, okay, remember, stand with your feet this way, do this, do this, make sure you move your elbow and all these things that get in the way of just letting instincts take over. And when you're doing something like a sport, you need instinct because your rational conscious mind is not fast enough. It cannot calculate all the variables. There's too many things in play. Your instinct has a much higher processing speed and level of intelligence in terms of responding to these things. And so self one won't get out of the way because it doesn't trust self two. It's worried all the time. And I get this even when I give a talk, when I know what I'm going to say, and I know that when I give up, get up there, I'm going to do fine. Self one is always like, okay, should we, let, let's look over the bullet points one more time. Let's practice thinking. And I always know that's only going to make it worse, but I have such a hard time letting go and just trusting self two. I mean, and, and so if you can train self one to say self two, I respect you. I trust you get up there and just get in the zone. I know you're going to make magic happen. I don't even know how, but I know we've prepared. I know we've practiced and I know now it's time for me to hand it off to you. And I want to observe and cheer you on just like everyone else. And to almost be in awe of your own self's ability to, to get in the zone and to adapt and handle this. And that kind of relationship between your two selves where they respect one another and where you sort of say, I trust you versus Oh, self too, you're so stupid. You always forget to do this. You need it. Let me just come in and take over. Let me come in and take over. That's when everything goes to hell. So anyway, that was kind of the main insight. He has all these great examples of trying to teach people by giving them instructions on how to swing versus just saying, okay, watch me swing 10 times. Now you try it. And this guy mm -hmm. tries it and does it looks like flawless except for one thing. When he said, okay, now you try it. The guy goes, oh, I noticed you were moving your feet in a certain way. I, I got it. Let me try it. He, he takes 10 swings that all looked perfect except his feet. 
And the guy said afterwards, um, everything looked good except your feet. He goes, oh, I forgot about my feet. And he goes, it's no coincidence that the one thing he consciously took note of and tried to remind himself to do was <laughs> couldn't do. And the, when he just watched me swing and no one told him, um, see how my elbow's at 90 degrees. Now do the grip like this. Just watch me. Because our self too is it learns based on images and feelings and it just takes in an image and then it mimics it in this very natural way. This is how pre-verbal humans, very young children, learn. They just watch things and they mimic them. That's how they learn to walk. You don't break it down for them step by step. Okay, now lift your foot uh, at a 35 degree angle. Now bend your you know, heel muscle. Nope, you're too, too much tightness in your ACL, right? That's how self one tries to teach things. But self mm. just watches and then just does it. And, and, and self one is always so worried about that process. They're so untrusting that it's going to work and they try to get in the way. So that was what I took out of this book. And I know that was a very long rant, but it was truly awesome stuff. I wondered if you had some, some thoughts and insights on that. Well, it's interesting that the book is about tennis because it reminds me of a story that Tony Robbins tells about coaching Andre Agassi and uh, Andre was kind of in a slump. And he tried everything else and a close friend told him, you know, try Tony. And he calls Tony up and Tony meets with him. And Tony says, look, I, I don't know anything about tennis per se, but I do know a lot about mastering your state. I do know a lot about helping people get into the zone and I can help you do that. So the first thing he did was he watched a ton of footage of Andre playing. And he said nearly every time when Andre was in his zone and when he dominated, there was this little idiosyncrasy that preceded, you know, the start of the of the match he would walk onto court and he would do this little thing with his head where he would just sort of like twirl he had this ponytail or whatever he would just like twirl his ponytail in a certain way and tony said i know that seems like it has nothing to do with success but that's a pattern that i saw every time you do that little thing you have a good game and since you've started this slump you stop doing that. So it's not superstition. It's not that twirling your ponytail makes you a great tennis player. But for you, that's some kind of ritual that for whatever reason, triggers that state so that you can operate from that right self from that flow state. And, and so then he began to work with Andre, you know, to take that and do it consciously, but then internalize it so that it moves down to the level of unconscious competence. And so much of success is about bringing into our awareness these unconscious processes that make us our best. I mean, it, it, the analogy I like to use is, you know, you take Chronicles, from Nar Chronicles of Narnia or a, a lot of these like children's shows about magic where the kids are in the library, some kid pulls a, shell, pulls a book from the shelf and the shelf begins to turn around and it magically transports them into another realm. Now that's a really cool experience and it's awesome, but what was the book? that made the shelf move and how do you do it again? How do you replicate the process? That's the million dollar question. And many of us have experiences of such high level optimization that we feel like we're producing magical results. We're operating at magical levels, but how do we replicate that? It's a very difficult thing to do because they're unconscious. And I, I think Tony Robbins talks about this a lot with neural associative conditioning. This book talks about it a lot, mastering that inner game is so key. How do you make those processes conscious, but then how do you take it to the next level so that you're not like the guy with the feet, you're overthinking it, you know? Yeah, it, it really resonated with me. The book also talks a lot about just learning and the way people learn. And this guy started out studying education and then he sort of in tennis um, started applying it to how people learn tennis. But as someone who's 
so huge into unschooling and, and this sort of free to learn um, approach and, and in the way that I parent, all this stuff, the analogy was so powerful to say, you know, when you, when you don't trust your child's self-interest and drive and natural ability to just bump into the actual world and given the costs and benefits of their behavior, adjust them in a way that's going to be beneficial to them. You end up just, but, but they're going to be stupid. They're going to, they're going to do this. They're going to, they're going to hurt themselves. They're going to, whether it's, you know, physically or just emotionally or whatever. And so you want to try to like teach them all the facts and like make sure they know logically that this could happen. This could happen. When someone says this, you should say thank you to them versus just letting them see what happens when someone says, you know, here you go. And they don't say thanks. And then eventually they sort of like observe other people saying thanks. They see that it's valuable. They pick it up on their own. We're so terrified. But what if they never pick it up on their own? What if they're rude their whole life? What if they never get any jobs or success because they were never made to say thank you by their parent? Like I've got to make this happen. We so underestimate the sort of gut level, subconscious, natural learning process of observation, testing, the tacit knowledge we have. Like none of us know how to ride a bike. We couldn't explain it. We just do it. Our bodies do these amazing things mm -hmm. in our minds that we could not rationally describe or handle. I mean, I remember hearing in baseball a couple of years ago about the difference between Alex Rodriguez and Manny Ramirez back in the time when they were both, you know, really top players. And, you know, hitting, hitting a major league pitch is something that is not your rational conscious mind is not capable of it. It's not capable. If you were to say, I want to look at the ball and follow it until it gets to the right zone and swing my bat in the perfect way that's going to hit it, it happens too fast. It's a physical impossibility. You have to turn it over to your instinctive sort of natural, um, the, the part of us that we don't know how it works. We truly don't know how this is possible because when you try to rationally break it down and, and do it consciously, you can't. It's, it's just too hard physically. And so it's a great example of a type of activity. So Alex Rodriguez was going through a slump and he had like a life coach and all this stuff. And he, you know, he's very scrutinized. He's in New York and he's a, he's a thinker. He was a phenomenal player, but just he would go through these slumps. And so so one sportscaster was like, yeah, the difference is he steps up to the plate and he's like, okay, find a happy place. No, wait, don't find a happy place. Find a place that makes me angry. Oh, wait, no, was it anger? Okay, no, 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 no. Get, get my feet standing in a certain, okay, now, the, okay, then don't look at the pitcher's eye. No, look at the pitcher's eyes. Okay, make it, now the fans, tune the fans out. No, 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 take the fans in. What? And he's like going through this whole, trying to figure it out, you know, pitch comes in, strike one. And then the whole thing starts over again. And he's, and then you could almost see it when he's going through these slumps. He's trying so hard. Manny Ramirez like gets up there with his hat. He's got a huge piece of bubble gum. He's blowing it. And he gets up to the plate and he's like, wait, what's the count? What are we doing? Oh, look, cotton candy in the stands. Crack, you know, RBI double. <laughs> it's like, yes, his conscious mind truly. And you'd see players like this. David Ortiz always reminded me of this. He's just kind of having fun or John Cruck back in the day. Their conscious mind is truly out to lunch. They're like, oh, hot dogs. I wonder if I'm going to let's have a hot dog tonight for dinner. Oh, there's a pitch. Oh, look, my body just hit it. You know, like their conscious mind is just not, not trying to call the shots because they have so much trust in their subconscious and in their, in their instinctive ability to do this thing without thinking about it. And I think that's just, there's something so cool about that. I mean, I've had this when I've all of a sudden I drive home, I pull up in my driveway and I'm like, wait a minute, I don't even, how did I get here? Or, uh, you know, you'll be on the way home and all of a sudden you'll realize, I don't know, how did I, where am I? Where, and your conscious mind drops onto the scene and freaks out and starts to be like, oh my gosh, am I lost? I need to, and it's like, no, you actually were fine. 
you, your brain somehow just instinctively was driving you back home. You didn't even need to think about it, you know? So how, how do you do that, man? How, how do you get to that point? I think the thing that helped me the most in, in reading the inner game of tennis um, was the concept of, and in relating it to the relationship with, with my kids was really helpful. If I look at my kids with respect and admiration and say, I don't know how, but somehow you always just find a way to do this. Somehow you just figure out, somehow you just learn. And when your kids do something that you did not think they were capable of and you don't know where they learned it and you never taught them or they use some big vocabulary word in a way that you just totally are blown away by, it's so delightful. And leaning back and saying, I need to learn to trust you and just respect. You have some magic. You just do things. You just make it happen. And at Voice and Exit, before I went up on stage to give that talk, I deliberately said, all right, I'm not going to look at an outline again. I'm not going to go through in my head the bullet points I want to hit. Instead, self one, I'm here to hand it. I did my work. I did my preparation. I'm here to hand it over to you, self two. You have some magical way. When you get up on that stage and you feel the energy of people in the crowd, you're going to just do something. And I'm here to watch and enjoy it as much as anybody else because I respect what you're able to do. I don't understand it, but I love it. It's magical. And, and treating it as if it truly is another self that you have respect for and you're in awe of. That, that was really helpful for me. I wonder if this has anything to do with the origin of ritual or how superstitions begin. Because when you think about it, many of the processes, the routines that help us get into that state – they're largely unconscious. And so you have these little things that you do. Like for me, for instance, uh, before I give a talk, I like to go for a walk or I like to listen to a little jazz because it helps me turn off that inner critical part of me that gets me out of that flow state. And after you do things like that for a while, you, you get accustomed to standing this way or doing this little ritual and experiencing success. You kind of forget that this worked precisely because it helped you get into your flow state, not because there's some magical power in the ritual itself. It, it, it just makes me curious as to, you know, whether or not that could be a partial explanation for how some of these things happen. No, oh, I've always thought about that. The, the sort of rational side or the unlikely origins of ritual and, and superstition. Um, hey, let's move to one of the, let's move to actually, why don't you hammer on both of the things that you wanted to talk about? And then we'll see if we have time I might want to spend next week with a little bit more time on the concept of betting on yourself because I think there's maybe a, a, a lot more in there. So maybe we can we can hold off on that one. Uh, the two things you mentioned regarding the um, power of uh, or how saying no is actually more polite often than saying yes and how uh, Jesus, as an example, was not here to sort of make people happy um, necessarily. Yeah. So when you delve into the psychology of why people often find themselves saying yes, when they would rather say no, it's often because they believe, well, I'm going to suffer some negative consequences or I, I'm going to hurt someone's feelings and, you know, they'll be disappointed in me or what have you. And so people decide, okay, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say yes, even though I'd rather say no, uh, because I, because I want to be a nice person. But what usually happens when people do that is they think of themselves as having done some kind of favor and to the person that they said yes to. And one of the ways you can detect this is by how yes people react when gratitude isn't expressed to them in the way they thought it would be expressed. Uh, you find people who say yes when they really want it to say no are usually very angry, very bitter, very disappointed, 
when someone doesn't have what they consider to be the appropriate reaction. I went out of my way to be there for that person's birthday party, even though it was really inconvenient for me, and I didn't even get an X, Y, Z, really upset. And in that moment, you realize that what they were doing really wasn't an act of charity at all. It was an act of business. It was a negotiation. They were thinking to themselves, it, I want to say no, but if I say yes, I'm going to get something out of the deal, whether that's freedom from something negative or an added positive. And if they don't get what they thought they would get out of the deal, they turn out to be very bitter. I find some of the meanest people in the world are the very people that often say yes in an, in, in an effort to be nice. Because even though they don't hurt your feelings, when you ask them for something, they turn out to express their resentment towards you, their bitterness towards you in ways that are passive aggressive and far more sustained. Whereas the person who says, no, I'm not gonna do that, I can't help you, that person, they may kinda hurt your feelings in the moment, but they don't lead you on, it's not sustained, it's over, right then and right there. Was that kind of like when you were you were like, man, I gave Isaac and Heather free tickets to uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom theater production, <laughs> and the dude couldn't even have me stand in his wedding. Made me the MC. <laughs> yeah, I remember you were kind of bitter about that. Yeah, I was pretty bitter about <laughs> turns, that. Man. Turns out there were strings attached. No, I, I think that's a great point, though. I mean, it, I think the misunderstanding of altruism or being a good person or helping people out. Um, leads to all the worst behaviors in the world. Like I think guilt and shame and obligation, this big confusing web and manipulation that people use, um, it just poisons everything. And, you know, we were joking with the Praxis team earlier that like, man, everything's so much better when it's a monetary exchange, <laughs> when relationships are based on money. Because somebody on the team was talking about people like doing coaching sessions with him. And when he's done you know, where people pay him for him to talk, they, they come so much better prepared, they get so much more out of it, it's more valuable. So we're just talking about this in general, but I think if there's so much truth to it, and it's not because money inherently magically makes things better, it's more because in the absence of money, we tell ourselves that these exchanges are charitable or open-ended or not self-interested, but they never are. It's just when there's money involved, we're honest about the fact that we're doing it to gain value. That's why the money's involved. You can't pretend that you're doing otherwise. When there's not money involved, you're still doing it to gain value. You're, it's still an exchange, but you're, it's easier to lie to yourself about it. And then you have all these layers of lies and self-deception and, you know, oh, I'm just, I'm just doing this to help somebody out. And then later you're bitter at them that they didn't thank you. So really you weren't, you were doing it to get thanked. And now, you know, now you've got weird passive aggressive stuff going on or like, Hey TK, I'm just calling to say what's up. You don't have to call me back. And then I'm bitter that you don't call me back. And then, we've got, <laughs> right. you know, like, it, it makes it harder to be honest. And I think that honesty is important. So yeah, the power of no, if you are later going to hold it against someone um, or you expect a certain outcome that's not guaranteed upfront and you'll be really upset if you don't get that outcome, then just say no and save both of you. I think that's, I think that's hugely powerful. Tell me about Jesus. Oh, go ahead. Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 I'll tell you about Jesus, man. Tell me about Jesus. <laughs> Sounds me. like a, a gospel song, right? <laughs> tell me something about the Lord. <laughs> I, like, felt, I felt my, 
<laughs> those preacher instincts, man, they just kicked in. I was like, oh man, I'm as ready. As soon as I said it, it was like, uh, it's like that SNL sketch. Um, <laughs> what's up with that? Where the host <laughs> yeah. just can't stop singing. I'm like, tell me about Jesus. You're like, tell me about Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> that, that needs to be another segment. <laughs> All right, man. So first of all, shout out to Abby for uh, referencing the words of Jesus, because one of my personal pet peeves is I, I, I think there's so much de- so much defensiveness built around Christianity, especially with Christianity being the dominant religion of our nation. Most of us know what it's like to be annoyed or offended by a Christian when most of us just don't have experience with being annoyed or offended or let down by a Zen Buddhist. So we live in an age, man, where you can quote almost anybody and get away with it. But if you quote Jesus, you know, um, it makes people uncomfortable. It's like, well, I'm not religious, so I can't learn anything from that. It's like, hey, man, just chill out. Just chill out and relax. There's a lot to learn from Jesus. So props to Abby for for reference. Jesus. (laughs) But okay, so here's something interesting. So a lot of people have this idea of Jesus as this really peaceful guy who, you know, everybody liked, everybody loved. People think that Jesus was Joel Austin, you know, like this smiley guy who was super popular. And, and, and everyone was like, how could you be offended by Jesus? You know, Jesus came to bring peace and bring everybody together. But here's a passage from Luke chapter 12 verse 51 through 50 to 53. And I'm going to read the King James version because as the saying goes, if the King James Bible was good enough for Moses, it's good enough for me. <laughs> I think Abraham Lincoln <laughs> said that in a meme. Yes. So he says this. He says, suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth. I tell you nay, but rather division. For from henceforth there shall be five and one house divided, Three against two and two against three. The father shall be divided against the son and the son against the father, the mother against the daughter and the daughter against the mother, the mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. This is one of the most enigmatic passages in the Bible. It makes a lot of people nervous because here you have Jesus explicitly stating that you guys are misunderstanding my message if you think I came to bring peace. I came to create division but a different kind of division than what most people think about. The kind of division that comes with being committed to following the truth wherever it leads. You know, especially right now during this time where you have a lot of people protesting the the election, a lot of people bickering back and forth. I hear so many people say things like, hey guys, don't argue, don't disagree, don't talk about that topic, don't say that sort of thing, even if it's true, because we want to be united. It's the United States of America. We want to bring people together. And we treat bringing people together as if it's the end-all be-all and as as if peace is some kind of virtue um, separate from the truth. But Jesus came to preach a message that says your peace only matters if it's grounded in truth, a life oriented around truth. And and one thing that stops so many people from being honest with, with those around them, from following their dreams, from fulfilling their life mission, from living a purposeful life is this idea that, well, I don't want to disagree, you know, with Uncle Jimmy or I, I don't I don't want to have this opinion that happens to annoy my favorite professor from back in college, and we're so afraid of creating division that we've placed truth over peace. And I think Jesus often gets misunderstood here. He wasn't running around trying to get everybody to come together and hold hands and sing Kubaya by any means necessary. He was actually so determined to, to challenge the status quo and preach a message about an inner kingdom that he annoyed a lot of people. And he had more enemies during his day than he had believers. He was he was such a likable uniting force that uh, 
a mob uh, wanted him murdered and wanted a known murderer released instead. Can you imagine, you know, Joel Osteen having a mob demanding his crucifixion? Um, Yeah, I, I think that's so powerful to understand that, that if you pursue truth and if you're committed to finding it and living it, it will cost you in ways it will make people uncomfortable and if you're willing to do that and own it it usually ends up being better in the long term and the people you really value and love and respect will actually be fine we were just talking about this yesterday with uh someone who was interested in praxis or someone that one of us had spoken with it might have been you and their parents were just like hi you know i I, you want to do this but i want you to do this and we're just kind of talking about how parents and especially really good parents are usually the biggest obstacle to their children's success. And that's a necessity. That's not because the parents are bad. That's because to be your own person, the first and hardest thing you have to overcome is the good intentions of those who care about you because you have to first like assert your own self will and self ownership and say, I am now an adult. Even when it's people that care about me, even when it's people that love me, even when it's people that are successful and that have themselves done many things that I want to do. Because if I'm only doing it because of them, because they told me, I'm not really going to get where I want to get. And, you know, I think what often happens, the the irony here, you, you were talking about, you know, your parents will sometimes call you for insight or advice on something. Derek was talking about something similar. And The funny thing is all the things that you have insight or wisdom on that are unique that they want to tap into are the things that you obtained by rebelling against them once upon a time. (laughs) You know, I think, I think your parents are going to be the ones when you say, should I, should I jump out of the nest? Should I leave the nest? They're going to say, no, absolutely not. You're not ready every time, but who's going to be the first and proudest, the first to be proud and the most proud of all when you jump out of the nest and start soaring, they're going to see you soar and they're going to be like, so proud. They're going to love you. So if you're willing, if you ask them, they're going to say no. But if you say, you know what, I'm doing it anyway. And then you go do it. It's there. They, it is so common for parents to immediately respect you. And the relationship is just fine. You thought it was going to end the relationship and it was going to be horrible. So you were afraid to do it. You were afraid to divide. You were afraid to lose someone's respect, to say no to someone. But once you did it, and it worked out fine, those people who really matter, it usually ends up being okay anyway. Oh man, I mean, I've experienced this in my own life. I'm always the dude that's telling people, hey man, be true to yourself, you know, go after what you want, consider the risk, if you can live with it, go after what you want, nobody else has to live your life. But I remember a time when when my wife was considering exploring interest in martial arts, and the whole time she talked about it, I was my typical TK self. That's awesome, that's exciting, do you, that's great. But then the day that came for her to go to her first class, I got nervous and uncomfortable. Like, wait, are, are, are you going to be okay? Like, uh, what, what, what are they going to be teaching you? Do you want me to go with you? I just was felt like these – Because pro- you worried she was going to beat you up? <laughs> yeah, that's I was scared. You're like, I'm she was karate gonna... kid. I don't want you to sweep the leg. Hey, man, I know what those girls who know karate can do, man. <laughs> but, <laughs> that's so terrible. I got to laugh out of you, though. But, you know – it, it was so crazy because I found myself being nervous and protective. And I'm like, where is this even coming from? This doesn't even sound like me. And 
I realized, oh my gosh, it's close to home. It's easy to tell people to go after what you want, be true to yourself and follow your dreams. But when it's someone that you're close to, when it's someone that you really love, when you know that you might share the negative consequences of their experiences, it's harder to be objective and you feel the need to protect them. And these these are things that you have to keep in mind when people are are giving you advice. But another thing I say on this same topic is you don't have to be disrespectful to disagree. You know, my, my brother, Gerald, who is a youth pastor, is one of the best people in the world at this. I mean, we grew up around a ton of pastors, a ton of older guys, always positioning themselves as mentors in our lives. And some of them were really awesome guys that we enjoy talking to and listening to. Some of them, not so much. But I remember in the, in the kind of home we grew up in, it was a very conservative Pentecostal home where uh, women didn't wear pants. Uh, you didn't go to the movies. Wait, you didn't listen to secular music. Women were running around with no pants on? <laughs> that's not conservative, brother. That that sounds like uh... <laughs> some kind of I don't know what. Sorry, they wore skirts and dresses. Okay, got it. Uh, uh, thanks for that clarification because you know there's somebody out there that would choose to go with that understanding. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe that Mr. Coleman said. Uh, so yeah, man, we grew up in that kind of home, and I remember my brother Gerald. He grew out these uh, dreadlocks, and there there were a couple of pastors who just had like these really old school beliefs. And one of the guys was like, you know, that's kind of demonic for you to wear your hair like that. And, and I, I remember just being like, what? And he said, he said, yeah, that's what witch doctors do, man. And, and they grow these dreadlocks out. And, and he gave my brother this history of it and everything. And my brother was not about to cut his dreadlocks, you know, to accommodate this man's preferences. And yet he respected him, you know, and my, and my brother said to him, he goes, hey, I, I respectfully disagree, but I'll tell you what, I'm always open to the possibility that I'm wrong. So in case I am wrong, I just ask that you pray for me. Just pray for me. Because right now, I don't see it if I'm wrong. And it was amazing to see how easily he would diffuse arguments with mentors and authority figures that would try to speak truth in his life. It's like he gave them nothing to work with, man. He just listened to them, nod his head, and be like, oh, man, I can tell that you love me for saying that. I really appreciate you giving me your thoughts on it. I'll tell you what, I don't agree, but just pray for me. Pray for me. <laughs> I'd be so tempted to like, you know, go research the history of dreadlocks and, you know, all this stuff and come back and be like, bam, you know, but... right, right. You're wrong. But a lot of people and I think this is what scares a lot of people. A lot of people think that, hey, if you don't see eye to eye with somebody that you love who's advising you to do something different, you have to convert them. You have to yell at them that this process has to go down with you saying, no, you listen here, mom. You're yeah. not running my life anymore. Nah, man. You can just be honest and you can be respectful and you can be cool about it and just give other people time to adjust and emotionally process what they're going through. Don't try to micromanage their emotions in the same way you don't want them micromanaging the pursuit of your dreams. Yeah, I mean, imagine if your brother's like, okay, I just spend, you know, weeks, months. I just need one more fact about dreadlocks that's going to finally get this guy to be excited about my dreadlocks like I am. Like I need him to feel that way about them. So I've got to, can, can, maybe I can find some other Christian who has dreadlocks and get them to talk to him. Maybe, you know what I mean? Just going and searching and it's like, well, he already knows that it's fine for himself. The need for that other person to share that sentiment is, is a prison. And once you free yourself from it, not only does it open you up for progress, but the paradox is it's actually the most likely way that that other person is going to end up sharing your same, you know? Oh man. And the reason I thought it was important to, to bring up Jesus in this regard is because I think there's a tendency in many Christian and conservative backgrounds to look at all forms of, of rebellion or all forms of disagreement 
as kind of like a bad thing. And that's sort of like a, a worldly philosophy. But there's actually a strong biblical basis for it. I think about in the story of Joseph, this guy that so many people hold up as a patriarch who had these amazing dreams given to him by God and went on to fulfill those dreams. When he first told those dreams to his brothers, his brothers weren't the only ones who chastised him, but his father did as well. Now, of course, the Bible says that his father held it in his heart, but his father didn't react by saying, oh, Joseph, your dreams are great. Your dreams are amazing. I support you. He, right along with his brothers, you know, admonished him. And that guy's name, it was Jacob. And when people refer to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're talking about that guy, that patriarch who didn't quite understand his son's dreams and who was a little bit off in trying to interpret them, you know? So there's something to be said about even really great people, people of great integrity, not being able to know and properly discern all of the things that are meant to be in your heart. Man, that's a good teaser for the topic that we're going to put off for next week about betting on yourself instead of always looking, waiting for that person that you respect to say, yes, you may move forward. Yes, bet on me. Put your hope in me and my knowledge and expertise that I'm going to tell you this is the right course of action and this isn't. Instead of saying, bet on the thing that you have control over, which is yourself. Throw your money, throw your resources, throw your time, throw your actions behind what you know to be true instead of looking for some guarantee from someone Mm. else. Because not only are you probably not gonna get one that's good for you, but you're probably gonna get the opposite. The very thing that's probably gonna yield the most, people outside of yourselves are gonna be saying, no, that's terrible, don't do that. Um, Yeah, we'll dig into that, I think, next week. Help me remember. (laughs) I I, I look forward to it. One thing I wanna put out there to our audience, because I always find this interesting, if there's something that we talk about and you have a follow-up question to these specific topics, because I think this is a lot better than just putting a generic fill for questions. Send Write in the comments when we post on Facebook, when we post on our blogs, and I can't promise that we'll get to them, but maybe sometime, maybe, maybe we can spend some time at the end of episodes kind of addressing questions, counterexamples, objections, and concerns of, you know, about things that we said in previous episodes. I think that could be fun. I like it. My recommendation for this week is very obvious and simple. The inner game of tennis. Go pick it up. Check it out. Uh, If you're a tennis player, you'll probably get even more out of it um, because it's got some stuff specific to that. But I think it's well worth the read. I think there's some really powerful stuff in there. I think a great companion piece to it is a book that Praxis COO Cameron Soresby recommended that I read, and it has had a profound impact on my life and helping me understand how I work. It is called Managing Oneself. It's a Harvard Business Review classic, and it's by Peter Drucker. Sounds like a boring businessy title, but it's a life-changing book about helping you master the inner and outer game of success. I love it. All right, man. Until next week. It's been real from the beehive. <laughs> I always forget. We got to keep saying, mentioning the beehive now. Yes. Keep the beehive alive. <laughs> All right, man. We'll talk later. <laughs>